So uh, let's let's turn now to uh, Acts, not Acts, Romans chapter eight, verse thirty-one, and we're going to read through to nine, verse five. So a little bit of recap, um, and then moving on to a new section in chapter nine today. And before we read, once again, let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we come again uh, craving your word. We're hungry uh, to receive from you, and we pray you'd satisfy those desires, uh, that your word would feed us and build us up and strengthen us um, and draw us closer to maturity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you may remember we read this before, but Paul says in verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake... Uh, We are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, And the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. You might remember that the background to this letter uh, is that Paul is intending to uh, finish some work in Jerusalem. And, uh, and then he's going to make his way uh, via Rome uh, and from Rome uh, to launch out on a new missionary venture uh, westwards uh, towards Spain. And you can read that in chapter 15. Uh, Paul gives his reasons uh, there uh, for what he's doing. But while he is in Rome, uh, nothing would delight him more than to be able to preach the gospel to them. Remember that back in... In chapter 1, verse 15, um, uh, he he says this, uh, So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also uh, who are in Rome. And so Paul is is always eager to to reap a harvest uh, among them and and among the Gentiles more, 
widely. He's, uh, he has a, a missionary heart. And uh, he's always wanting to go to uh, unevangelized fields, if you like. Um, this is, and so this is the missionary impulse that he has. Um, he has this hunger. Uh, he has this desire, this sort of sense of compulsion. Uh, he says that in 2 Corinthians 5.14. The, the love of Christ compels me uh, to be a, a minister of this, this gospel. And that's what drives Paul onwards in the work of mission, in the work of ministry. And as he writes this letter, you know, he can't, he can't help but, exp- uh, but spell out uh, what the gospel is. Um, I, I mentioned this is uh, probably in the kind of genre of, of missionary letters. It's not really a doctrinal treatise. Uh, it's, it's actually a missionary letter. And, but it's a missionary letter where he's laying out uh, the, the creden- his credentials and his message. And he's seeking to gather support for his work. Uh, the wider work of the gospel. And uh, what better way to do that than just to spell out the gospel that he goes around preaching and telling people about. And, uh, and as we've discovered, there are riches, there are depths uh, to this gospel message uh, that uh, uh, really come to us and, uh, and, and bless us as we think about it. And, and for Paul, the, the message, of course, is centered around Jesus Christ. It's centered around his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And, uh, it's, and it's this gospel that is the power of salvation for all those who believe. That's what he says back in chapter 1, verse 17. And it's through faith that anyone, Jew or Gentile, no matter what kind of background that you come from, you can receive a righteousness from God, a righteousness that you and I lack. Uh, we don't have righteousness by ourselves, but God has revealed a righteousness uh, in his son, Jesus Christ. And we can have that righteousness uh, by faith as we trust in him. And so this, this work of Jesus and our faith in him becomes key to understanding uh, all that God will do in the life of the believer. Uh, as we've worked through the chapters, we've seen in chapter 6 how we are uh, united to Jesus Christ. As it were, we are kind of in Christ uh, in his death and resurrection. And baptism symbolizes that in chapter 6. And, and we're no longer bound to that old master sin. We're, we're not in slavery any longer. But now we have a new master, Jesus Christ. Uh, and we are under grace and we're under his, his kingly, uh, gracious reign. And, uh, and that's a great joy for us. And so we move from that state of being under sin and under condemnation to being free of sin and free of condemnation in the grace and under the smile of God, if you like. Uh, And we stand in chapter 5, he says, we stand in the state of grace. Um, And then when we get to chapter 8, yes, chapter 7 deals with a lot of the struggles of the Christian life. But when we get to chapter 8, we come to this glorious chapter of assurance which we looked at uh, three weeks ago now. But, uh, and Paul allows us, as it were, to step back and to see this, this great panorama of, of God's gracious purposes, not only for us as individuals, not even for us only as a church, as, as a corporate body, the church of Jesus Christ, but for all of creation. That this cosmic event of Christ's death and his resurrection. 
brings it as, uh, will work its way out in fruits in the new heavens and the new earth uh, with the revealing of the sons of God and the revealing of his people uh, before all creation to the praise and glory uh, of God. And, uh, and, that, and that key moment at the end, you know, Paul kind of situates himself at the very end of all things, the consummation of all things. And he invites us to join with him in seeing this great panorama. Um, and we will be resurrected. We will have new bodies. Be uh, finally, completely and utterly free of our sin. This is the, the church of Jesus Christ brought home to glory. And chapter 8 finishes with those wonderful words from verse 35 onwards. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he gives a number of uh, suggestions in verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so now we come to chapter 9. Uh, having uh, walked on this in the heights, as it were, uh, we've surveyed the panorama of God's glorious saving works. And, uh, and we immediately hit something quite odd, <laughs> quite strange. You'd think that Paul would kind of have finished at that point. And now he's going to go to the, well, what are the practical implications of how to live let, that let you get in chapter 12? But actually from 9 through to, uh, through to 11, uh, we see something else. And almost at the beginning of chapter 9, we see a comp- almost a complete reversal of a sense of joy to now a sense of great sorrow and sadness. Now why is that? Why is he... Verse 2, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Well, it's as he thinks about his own people, his kinsmen, his Jewish friends. And you can remember back to the, as it were, the kind of theme verse of the book of Romans, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Uh, To the Jew first, And also to the Greek. To the Jew first. And yet, he looks around and he sees his Jewish friends not responding to the gospel. They seem to have rejected it. And you see that. You read the book of Acts. You see him him going into the synagogues. And more often than not, he's eventually turfed out. Because he can't take it. And that. You know, when somebody's run out of arguments, they use physical force to turf you out. And if you, so if you know anything about Paul, you'll know that the greatest opposition that he faced was from the Jews. And it's because of that that he is, is now in great anguish, having seen this great gospel. And how is it that my people cannot see it? I have great anguish and sorrow for my kinsmen. That's, this is the first point I want to dwell on this evening, he feels this great sorrow for his kinsmen. Look with me for a moment about how, uh, and see how important this is to Paul. And note the, the four 
there are four notes of emphasis here. Uh, Firstly, he says, I am speaking the truth. He is, he's not lying about what's going on in his heart. So he's unloading the truth about what's going on in his heart. And then secondly, he says, and he puts it negatively, I'm not lying. I'm not telling you an untruth about this. I really feel this. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. And thirdly, he then appeals to his conscience. My conscience bears me witness. What's the conscience? As one writer put it, the conscience is the activity by which we we judge ourselves. We are able to judge ourselves through the conscience. Uh, Animals don't judge themselves. They, They don't have a conscience. But we have a sense of what is good and right because God has put it there. And then thirdly, he says that this is a conscience that is in the Holy Spirit. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So this is a man who's who's conscious of the the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in his life, that his life and his heart uh, are under the scrutiny and sanctifying power of that Holy Spirit. And his conscience, therefore, has been shaped over years now, maybe 30 years since Christ died and uh, and he was a young man at that point when Christ was crucified. And in those 30 years, and he has, as he has come to know Christ, his conscience has been shaped. Not, you know, our conscience is not untainted by sin, isn't it? Sometimes our consciences misfire, and we get guilty about things we should never be guilty about, and we, we are hard-hearted to things that we should be soft, soft about. Our consciences are messed up. But under the power of the Holy Spirit, he reconstitutes us. He renovates us. And here's Paul saying, my conscience is in the Holy Spirit, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he feels this great sorrow and anguish as he thinks about his own kindred people and how they have rejected the saving power of the gospel. And friends, I want to say to you uh, this, uh, that this is the inevitable result of someone who has had his or her eyes opened uh, to, first of all, the human predicament that we're all in and that sin places in, in, in us, places us in, and at the same time have, have had our eyes opened to the sheer wonder and glory of the grace of God. Our consciences begin to act in a new way as a result of the gospel coming into us. And so it's the most natural thing in the world for a Christian to react the way that Paul does here about his own people. You see, uh, the, the heart of Paul is not just that he is, he is making an intellectual case for the gospel. And Paul is an intellectual. He was an intellectual. A deeply schooled individual. But he doesn't sit reveling in his cleverness and reveling in clever theological arguments, as though he's simply dealing with a subject like we'd learn at school, and we master the subject as we learn more and more about it. Now, what happens to Paul is more than that, that as he learns the gospel, as he understands the grace of God, 
His heart is moved to think about those who need the gospel. Especially those closest to him, his own people. His Israelite friends. You know, on occasions I've, over the last few decades I've been a Christian, I've, I've been asked now and again, have I ever experienced discontent as a Christian? And, and, and we can experience discontent for all kinds of reasons. And most of them, most of them are probably sinful. Uh, Paul seems to encourage us to be content in all and every circumstance. But I wonder if you've ever felt this powerful sense of restlessness that Paul seems to experience here as he sees his own people rejecting the gospel. Powerful sense of restlessness. I'm challenged by that. I don't know about you, but I am challenged by that. Those of us who are Christians today, do we have a deep sorrow for those around us, especially perhaps our, our friends and our family members who don't know Jesus Christ? Or maybe your colleagues that you see every day of the week. Or your neighbors that you say hello to every other day. And I'm not speaking about a, a manufactured feeling that we need to work up in ourselves. And we say to ourselves, I know I ought to feel this, so I'll work it up somehow. I'm talking about what naturally happens when the gospel comes to a person. That you have that deep sense of sorrow and anguish in your heart that there are those around you that don't know Jesus Christ. And actually I think the extent to which you have been moved by the plight of non-Christians around you is a measure of how much you grasp both the scale of your need and the scale of your understanding of the grace of God in the gospel. If you have a small understanding of these things, you'll not be moved very much. But if you have a growing understanding of these things, you'll also have a growing heart for the people around you. I remember once one of the members of this church, and I should say that person's not here, so if you're feeling guilty this morning, <laughs> this evening, don't worry. <laughs> but I remember once, it was years ago, one of our members of our church said, said I don't feel I need to share the gospel with anyone. I don't feel any need to do that. And it may have been a, you know, an unthinking statement at the time, but friends, I think it's not possible for a Christian to be so unconcerned about people around you. So Paul feels this great sorrow for his kinsmen. What about you? What about me? It's a challenge, isn't it? Secondly, think about the privilege that Paul feels because that that privilege that you feel makes the feeling of sorrow deeper. So the privilege makes the feeling deeper. See, it's not just that Paul, as a Jew, is is part of a wider Jewish family and and that he feels a special closeness to them. In, In a sense, it's much more than that. It's more than just familial bonds 
Um, actually, it's because the people of Israel are the covenanted people of God. And they've played a central role in the history of God's redemption. Um, and God's dealings with mankind generally in history have centered around the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And as such, they have been especially privileged by God. They have had so much blessing. And Paul makes a a little list here in verses 4 and 5. And look at them with me. First of all, he mentions, um, to them belong the adoption. The adoption. In other words, God chose the people of Israel. And he chose them for something to be something quite special. If you look back to, you don't have to do it now, but in, in Exodus chapter 4, uh, 22 to 23, so the beginning of the story of Exodus, um, Moses has to deliver a, a message from God to Pharaoh, and the message is this, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. Israel is my son. Let my son go that he may serve me. And it's an interesting statement, I think, because it, as Christians today, we, we, we ought immediately to find that something is pinging off in our minds about uh, the son of God here. Because you might be thinking about another son of God. Isn't Jesus the son of God? And as you think that, that Israel is the son of God, and then Jesus is the son of God, is there some relationship between Israel and Jesus? And yes, there is. There is a relationship. It is a relationship of shadow to reality. Of symbol to fulfillment. That Jesus is the true Israel who is foreshadowed in God's dealings with the nation of Israel. And I wonder if you believe that. I think it's quite a big step, actually. Maybe I'm making big assumptions here, but it's a big step. That Jesus is the true Israel. But let me mention to you another verse that says a similar thing. So do you remember in Matthew chapter 2, after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph flee with Jesus to Egypt to escape Herod. Because he's killing all the children that are under two years old. And uh, Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus have to stay in Egypt uh, until Herod is dead. And then they can return and they return to Nazareth. And Matthew says in 2.16, Matthew 2.16, he says, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes from Hosea 11 verse 1. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now if you're a good biblical scholar, uh, you'll, you'll look that up. You'll look up Hebrews, uh, Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. And... Uh, And you'll discover what Hosea was speaking about. Here's the whole verse. Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. He says this. When Israel was a child, I loved him. 
And out of Egypt I call my son. So Hosea is speaking about the Exodus. About Israel being brought out of slavery into the freedom of the promised land. But Matthew says, that's all foreshadowing Jesus. Jesus coming. Jesus is the true Israel. Now, in a sense, I'm digressing. We may come back to this over the next few weeks as we think about how Paul deals with the notion of Israel in chapters 9 through to 11. Because uh, it's complicated, isn't it? Jesus is the true Israel. There's the Israel of the Old Testament, the, the kinsmen. Uh, there's the Israel of believers. It's a different thing. Maybe the church. We'll come to that. We'll try and tease that out later. But Israel, but, you know, Paul's kinsmen, he's thinking about them. He's saying, what a privilege they have. They are, they are of the adoption. They, are the, they have the adoption. In a sense, they belong to God. And for a nation to be adopted by the living God to, is, is such a privilege to serve in the purposes of God in that phase of redemptive history. And so theirs is the glory. Think of those moments in Israel's history when the Shekinah glory uh, goes forward. Um, uh, it goes on from adoption to speak about the glory. Think of the Shekinah glory of God uh, coming to Israel, Mount Sinai, or the dedication of the temple, and the weight of the glory of God resting upon the people, and so on. And so he lists all of these benefits, the covenants that they were, they were given, instituted by God in Exodus 24, the Mosaic covenant, the giving of the law, this is how you're now to live as God saved and redeemed people. The true pattern of worship, not to follow idols. Remember the golden calf incident. There are ways to worship, and here it is all in my law, and you have to do that. And all the wonderful promises of God that are threaded throughout the, the Old Testament, not made to mankind in general, but to, to Israel specifically. And then finally in verse 5, uh, uh, the most glorious thing, about, uh, 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 thing of all, that out of, of these great fathers uh, of old, Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob, David, out of that line would come Jesus Christ, the Savior. And notice what he says about this Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And so... As we gather that all together, do you grasp the significance of this? Here's a people who, as it were, have been plucked out of obscurity, have been given so much, and then out of that people comes someone, a man who is none other than the second person of the Trinity, uh, coming as, uh, who is God himself, coming and taking upon himself human flesh to be the true Son, the true Christ, to be our Savior. And what has ethnic Israel done for the most part in the face of that truth? They've rejected the very Son of God that they have been so instrumental in producing. Curious, isn't it? <laughs> and so John chapter 1 verse 11 says this, 
He, Jesus, came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So we get this weight of a sense of burden on Paul's shoulders for his own kinsmen. Friends, I've already, I've already asked whether you have felt the burden of the need of the gospel that people around you have. But add to that a sense of great heritage, perhaps, that we have in this country. The many blessings we have had in this country. Think of the great leaders of the past in England. Great Englishmen, like John Wycliffe, who did so much to translate the scriptures into ordinary language. Or great Anglican martyrs like Thomas Cranmer and Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer in the 16th century. Or think of the great evangelists like George Whitfield or uh, John Wesley or Bishop Ryle in the 19th century. Or the great Baptists like John Bunyan or Charles Haddon Spurgeon in the 19th century. Or think of the, uh, there's plenty more Englishmen, but I mean, think of, think of the Welshmen that uh, we have known, Daniel Rowland or Howell Harris or Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And I could list a great number of Scotsmen in this country and Irishmen who have been such a rich blessing uh, to this land. Think of the great social reformers, evangelical Christians like William Wilberforce and the seventh Earl of Shaftesbury through whom slavery was finally abolished. Friends, we have a great Christian heritage in this country. It's not at the level of Israel's privileges, perhaps, but they are privileges. And does it not therefore move you or move me that in spite of this, of these privileges, there are some few in our day who are gripped by the gospel? as those saints of old once were. Does it not move you that there is so little response to the gospel in our day in Solihull? We should be moved. Friends, a true Christian rejoices in the gospel and feels a burden for those around us who reject it. And that burden is heightened by the realization of the opportunities and privileges that the people have had over the centuries. And they still reject it. Well, I want to finish with just a, a last point here. Why, why is this a, a very Christian response? Two reasons. Uh, the first one is a simple one. Paul says it is. <laughs> it's a Christian response. He says he is telling the truth in Christ, in verse 1. He's telling the truth in Christ. It's because he is he's in Christ. It's because he is a Christian. That he, is, he himself has been transformed and changed by the gospel. That the truth of his heart is... Uh, the truth is that his heart is filled with grief uh, and sorrow because of what he sees around him. That's the first reason Paul just says it is, as a Christian. The second reason is that his desire follows the pattern of Christ's desire. Did you see that? I wonder if you read that. You noticed that in verse 3. So listen to verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed 
and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That's quite an amazing verse, isn't it? It's not that he thinks he could actually be accursed so that his, his kinsmen could be saved. After all, nothing can separate him from the love of Christ now. He too is the, a recipient of the gospel blessings, which he'll never lose. Nor is it that he thinks that if he were to give his life in sacrifice and martyrdom, then his people could be saved. Uh, no, actually, uh, this is an expression of a desire that the gospel has put into his heart. Uh, so deep is his longing for the salvation of his kinsmen. And what's interesting about this is it's the very heart that Jesus himself had. That as he came to earth to spend himself for the sake of others. That he was accursed and cut off for the sake of people like you and me. He was accursed and he willingly went there. And he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as he went to the cross. But by his death and his suffering, we are saved. And if you're a Christian today, you'll get this heart. It's a Jesus-like heart. You, you may want to be a curse. No, you can't actually be a cursed. You will want to be accursed if you want if people could be saved. It's a very Jesus-like response. You know, if, if we're Christians today, our salvation is never simply simply about getting a ticket to heaven. You know, I've got my ticket. I put it in my back pocket, and I can just do what I like and not care about anything. I've got my ticket. Pull it out when I get to heaven. It's not about that. The gospel breaks you down. It, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, the gospel reconstructs you in Christ-likeness. And it will fill you with the mind of Christ. It will fill you with the heights of genuine joy. But to the extent that that happens, it will all, you will also be moved by the needs of those around you. And you'll be filled with a desire for them to know the Christ whom, whom you've come to know. And it will be in direct proportion. The extent to which you joy in the Lord is matched by the extent of the sorrow that you feel for the people around you. And so the person who, the Christian, who gives little thought to the salvation of those around us is a person who him or herself has little grasp of the power of the gospel. It may even be that he or she is not yet a Christian. But a person who is truly gripped by the awesome majesty of the Christ who saves is a person who develops a rich concern for the lost around. What about you this evening? Do you have that deep concern you want it, you can pray for it, and it will grow as you grow in grace. May he put into our hearts that desire for the salvation of souls 
all around us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words. Thank you for the heart, not only the doctrine that Paul teaches, but the example of his heart that comes before us. And we pray that you'd help us to have that kind of missionary zeal for Jesus' sake. Amen.